All right. Well, welcome to Ungroomed Media, podcast number two. Today's guest is Sweeney Young, a good friend of mine from back in the day, since I was about a kid. Uh, you know, Sweeney, if you could just introduce yourself to, um, yeah, uh, we'll start again. The Legions of Fans? Yeah, the Legions of Fans, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, g'day, I'm Sweeney, uh, Sweeney O'Hare Young. Uh, yeah, I, I was the first employee at your dad and mum's business search. Yeah, I remember I was about business. five, six years old. Yeah, I was yeah. 17. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, they've kind of been great friends of mine since like 12, 13 years. Yeah, I remember I used to like grab your um, DS and play it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Since you were a kid, it's weird now. Yeah. You're like a huge man now. You're taller than me, bastard. But um, yeah, like I'm great friends with you and your parents. It's yeah. great to be here. Yeah, I traveled through India with your dad one time. Absolutely, yeah. That was cool. Meditating, trying to go on a bit of a spiritual quest. Yeah. That was yeah. fun. Well, um, yeah. So like uh, you've had several careers throughout your life. Yeah. Um, I'm on my second now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think you started off like working with my parents at the age of 17. Oh, yeah. I guess. Yeah. That was. How long did I spend there? Like maybe uh, six months or something. Almost a year. I don't know how long it was. But then I got an acting job and I left to do the acting job. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, yeah, but I guess I took the best part with me. Like I stayed friends with them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you've, um, for our, for our, for our viewers, you've had like several careers throughout your life, I guess. You started off working in high school with my parents in a marketing company in sales. Yeah. Um, remember you used to make a lot of them like back in the day. Yeah. I feel yeah. like your dad talks about me like I'm some legend there. Like I was so yeah. amazing. I don't think I was. I think we just got on great and he liked me and I liked him, yeah. you know. But uh, it's very nice to be talked about like yeah. some kind of like Colonel Kurtz, this mysterious legend that all the new employees have to try and live up to. But yeah, you know, no, that's, that's I don't think I was that good. I think I just- Like a folk tale. You know, yeah. had fun. And, you know, we got on well. But uh, yeah, so I worked there. And then, and since I was, when I was 14, I started doing acting jobs here and there, um, you know, sporadically, which is pretty cool when you're in high school to be on TV every now and then. That was fun. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, so I left your dad and mum's place uh when i yeah when i was 18 when i got this role uh an acting role and i was doing that for a while and then went over to la lived over there for a few years um yeah i uh, i met a dude who said the other night actually he was a producer australian guy went over to produce films he said yeah i was pretty ambitious i went over there without any jobs or anything and i was like yeah man i've got you beat i was way more ambitious than you i went over there without any jobs i didn't have any jobs while i was there and i came back without any jobs you know yeah <laughs> Much yeah. more impressive, bro. Well, yeah, because yeah. back in the day, I think I remember, um, was Neighbours your first gig on TV or was it? No, I'd done an episode of this or an episode of that. Yeah. Um, you know, here and there, like a few episodes of Blue Healers. I was part of some gang that was stealing shit and throwing condoms full of water at cars and stuff. Yeah. Which was fun. And then um, I'd been on some kids show, Holly's Heroes and Telly Movie and stuff. And then, um, and then I got a role on Neighbours. It's like a lead dude. On yeah. that for a year, which was good. Um, yeah, it was great fun. And then, yeah, I guess I, so I went to LA after that for a while. Um, and, you know, it was great, like great fun, wandering around without huge amount to do. Sometimes that's great. Sometimes it sucks. I probably needed it. I think I was. So how was it like, so explain to me what the mindset was really like, you know, Melbourne high student um, back in the day, kind of got your first job at 17 and then, transition from sales into acting mm. you know like uh what was the what was going through your mind when you finally got that first big break with neighbors and 
Yeah, it was good, man. Uh, I remember getting the phone call from my agent saying I had the job and I was actually working another acting job at that time, like a little independent one and kind of going, damn, like, okay, maybe I can make a career out of this. Yeah. You know? Um, was acting something you were always passionate about? Is like a- I think I always wanted to be a comedian. Yeah. Yeah. I just always wanted to be a comedian. I kind of didn't, I didn't see kids on TV and think I could be one of them until- I got to act in this uh, this video my dad's work was making. I got to act in that. So some little dude playing my younger brother in that who'd done heaps of acting. So I asked him about it and uh, he said, get an agent. So I looked one up the next day, went and auditioned. And then the day after that, they called me and had auditions for me. Um, and then I realized, oh, okay, those kids on TV, just regular kids. So I started doing that, but I was always writing jokes since a young age. I just wanted to be a comedian, you know? Yeah. Um, but acting presented itself to me sooner. I also yeah. didn't realize you could just go into a bar and try comedy and that there were open mics and things like that. It's, yeah. It just seems like a different world. Is that something you experimented with, like going into a bar? Yeah, man. I've done it heaps yeah. over the last 10 years on yeah. and off. And yeah, it's just as terrifying as everyone says it is. And I yeah. haven't done it for ages because when I started, um, now I'm a psychologist. So yeah. uh, I just finished the master's um, start of this year. And it's so intense going into that. I did a few gigs, but then was like, I've got to just... I was hosting some podcasts as well. I just put it all aside and said, I have to absolutely focus on being the best clinician I can be. Yeah. So I put all that aside. I think there's a big responsibility that comes with being a clinician as well. Like when you've got clients that are relying on you for their psychological like support, I think you have to really be there for them. Yeah. 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 Kind of everyone throughout the door. I definitely understand that. Totally. Um, So how was it like, I guess, at that age, going from, I guess, just a regular kid to you know, a famous individual. Like, I don't know, there was a- Fucking like, weird, man. Yeah, yeah. dude, yeah. I, how, ba- how bad is this? I mean, I think I took it pretty well. Like, I think I definitely became a bit arrogant, got yeah. to me a bit, but not too bad, you know? I still was just hanging out with all my same friends and stuff like that. Um, I lived with my folks the whole time I was there. Yeah. Um, some ways it would have been cool to rent a place, but um, yeah, I remember there was one- t- I don't know if you've ever done something- when you were blacked out drunk. I mean, not that I get blacked out drunk. I've done several things when I was blacked out drunk. Has anyone ever told you something and you're like, you it's get- just like the growth horrors, yeah. You get to kind of observe your own self through someone else's eyes because you can't remember it. It feels yeah. like it wasn't you. Yeah, it's true, yeah. Anyway, so early on, there was this dude, David, who, um, David Hoffman, who's a great actor, great dude. And just, uh, I don't know, I just looked up to him a lot because he just had, just had a great way about him socially where he'd make you comfortable. And he was just a great dude, just a cool dude. Anyway, I remember- um, the first time I went out with all this, all the neighbors crew, um, I was used to putting, you know, a few dollars and cents together to get a beer on Brunswick street. And, uh, everyone's going, Oh, my round of cocktails. Cause they're all fucking rich, you know? Yeah. Anyway. So then I get blasted. I don't know what I'm doing. Drinking all these different cocktails. Still pretty young at this age as well. So yeah. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, so the next day in the green room, Dub, it's like, Hey, you got pretty drunk last night. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Hope I didn't do anything embarrassing. Expecting the answer to be no. And he goes, Oh, you kind of did. And I was like, fuck, what did I do? And he goes, well, I was standing there texting, you know, on his phone. He was standing there texting and there was some club photographer, you know, that people that take photos of the club. We're in this yeah. club called Eurotrash. He walks past and I come up, put my arm around David, David, and I go, hey, man, take a photo of us. We're on neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> Hearing that back, I don't even feel embarrassed by it because it's like, like someone else said it because I have yeah. no memory of it. I was yeah. Like, yeah, but, that um, is a bit of a horror, isn't it? Yeah. But I think I was—I think I coped pretty well. I mean, yeah. uh, 
you know, it is a weird thing. Like, you know, go out to a nightclub every 30 seconds, someone's trying to get a photo with me. I mean, that's like, that's pretty, Big shame, wasn't it? So a pretty wild thing, right? So what was the age where you actually got the role of Neighbours? And you I got it when I was 17. I started filming like three days after I turned 18. Wow. So like, this is your, like- A young dude. And yeah, I was kind of dumb, I reckon, yeah, yeah. you know, in a lot of ways. I mean, I did good in school, well in school, but I, um, I think just socially, emotionally, I think I was kind of dumb. I don't even think I was that- I don't think it was a good fit. For me, you know? Yeah. Um, you were only for about 150 like, episodes, wasn't it? So like, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, 170, something like that. But um, just never quite felt like me. I think I'm a lover of truth, you know? Uh, and, uh, you know, in some ways you got to try and bullshit yourself when you're acting. You can try and Absolutely. feel something you don't feel and get emotional about something you don't feel emotional about. Absolutely. I was chasing that connection. But now as a psychologist, every day is truth real so it's a much better fit i prefer it and comedy i think is all about finding truth you know and exploring something that doesn't quite add up exploring bullshit and pursuing truth so i think that now as a psychologist like when you when you have several clients coming from totally different perspectives on mental health uh as an individual that has to you know listen to all those stories like what are some key takeaways from that that you've noticed that like that you weren't aware of in the in, mm. in terms of mental health before, like even working as a crisis counselor, like what you mm. notice, like common themes that kept popping up mm. surrounding mental health that you know that weren't often discussed. Well, it's pretty broad in the way the ways in which people suffer, but I think at core, um, there's some kind of a disconnect from reality, in some way, which leads to most suffering. You know, um, I think something like PTSD is different is different bipolar can be different where you know the nervous system has been fired up in a way um but either in in, in all those cases a disconnect from reality is a common theme right i mean schizophrenia be obvious there's a disconnect from reality in terms of strange ideas and beliefs and um you know things you see in here that other people don't see in here that's disconnect from reality and that causes a lot of suffering if you're in a world where people are telling you no that's not happening and uh, you know um with something like bipolar people are flitting from extremely high to extremely low and yeah. they're struggling little to walk the middle middle road you know so that's a disconnect from reality um with something like ptsd the person's kind of brain and nervous system is expecting threat and feeling unsafe all the time when it makes sense that their body would respond like that because they were so unsafe you know a long period or a few short instances their body's going to be like, you know what? I will never be that vulnerable or unsafe again. So I'm going to be on high alert, right? And shut certain things down, like shut emotions down. Like I think yeah. a, like a big thing that I've experienced mental health-wise from a personal level is like that, yeah, what's been characterized as PTSD, like not specifically PTSD, but like more like complex PTSD, like trauma. Okay. Like, you know, when you feel, um, I think I stopped myself from feeling any emotions. Right. Like at one period of my time. And there was a period of time where I felt like I was psychopathic or sociopathic. Mm. Because I just wasn't feeling any emotions. Did you feel numb? Yeah, like I just felt numb. Like I think, right. Did you I feel depressed? Empty. Like depression was a part of it, but it was intermittent. So it was more like, numbness than like it, that it, heavy it was more numbness than feeling? Heavy depression. Yeah, yeah, right. So like, and I think looking back, like now that I've kind of you know, talked out those issues and really started to get a better grip on what they are, mm. I think you know, being numb is a better description for it than what I felt at the time, which is being empty. Mm. And, like, um, and, mm. and, and that's the that's the difference because when you feel so numb, yeah, you don't understand. Yeah, I do have these emotional responses. Because here's the thing, man: 
numbness is not what you are. Yeah. Right? It's not Absolutely. it's really not yeah. what you feel either. It's not even a physical numbness level, yeah. is something you do to what you feel. And unless you're six feet under, you're feeling something and you're not numb, you know. But exactly. there's there's a, numbness is like a defense against pain, Absolutely. right? So again, it comes down to denying reality, right? In some way or being disconnected from it. Denying implies you're doing it on purpose. Yeah. But there's some kind of disconnect from reality, some pain there, some anger, some resentment, some sadness, grief. You don't want to feel or feels too painful to feel. And so there's some kind of numbness that comes down. I'm just talking generally about yeah. numbness, not your situation. Um, yeah. But yeah, that is, that's the biggest thing I can see with mental health stuff. Um, and, it, you know, with PTSD, the, like, you know, the, uh, the, distorted beliefs that often come with that. Like, oh, I'm terrible, I'm gross, I'm no good. Sometimes that can be really so extreme if someone's been horribly sexually abused, for instance, where their their beliefs might be so tangible and convincing that, you know, people say things like, I feel like I've got black slime in my veins, not blood. So if I cut myself, black slime would come out. They really believe that. That's yeah. how viscerally evil and ugly they feel because- yeah you know, they were say sexually abused and they were told you want this or something horrible like that, that gets in their head, right? That's of course a distortion from reality. It Absolutely. makes sense that their brain is going to internalize that, but the treatment is going to be about helping them realign with reality, right? Realize that they do have value, that they're not evil, um, that it's blood in their veins, that there's not danger around every corner, but yeah, you know, there is a horrible thing, uh, you know, in human nature that allows us to hurt each other that way. And it's out there. It's just, you know, you, you don't want to let it compromise your whole life and sense of safety. Look, I think that's absolutely true. I think, you know, I remember um, when, I got, when I was going through that period, I think I really felt empty, um, especially when I was 18 years old, like in my first year of uni, second year of uni, despite mm. uh, having like the emotional responses. I think, I don't think many people from that I was around, like my friendship group or people that, like even at uni, people would have really known that I was feeling that way mm. because my um, physical responses was still very, very standard. Like, right. I could still laugh on command, still put up a good front. Yeah. But internally, I just wasn't feeling any emotion. Mm. Um, and I think a big part of that then led to me, you know, like, I think, you know, in com- in the commerce world, I started to feel like, all right, I don't have this capability to feel emotion. This is who I am. Now, mm. I think a way that I justified that to myself was by saying that, like, this can be a blessing in disguise in this world because I can be cold, ruthless, and just, like, kick people to the curb and make like that, <laughs> right? Like that, that was, yeah. that was that, you know, the thought process I was going through. But then I think as I like really started to think about it, I was like, yeah, but that's kind of fucked up. Like I, I disagree with so, so much of the behavior, mm. like so much of the behavior that these people, like, yeah, these are the people. You wouldn't be making this world. podcast if you didn't. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the truth is that it, it takes like time for, for you to like then realize that I'm, yeah, I do care about people and I do mm. care about like I don't just want to fuck people over and get rich like that's not the like I still love like you know um a sense of luxury and I still like you know nice cars and nice houses and holidays and stuff but I think it took like a really big uh like a big thing like like a level of self awareness for me to step back and be like yep all right I do feel I do have a certain value system like I do feel a certain way about things, even if I don't, even if I can't feel that emotionally, my mind is is rejecting the possible the notion of me being a cold and ruthless individual. Mm. Um, and then you start to realize, like maybe that's not who I really am. Mm. And I think when you start to come to that realization, it's interesting how emotion starts to open up for you again. Right. Um, I think it's still an ongoing process. I don't think that like. 
people can go from being numb to experiencing suicidal emotions, you know, in a heartbeat. I don't think that's a... It can happen kind of quick if you yeah, do take like a right kind of approach, like a, you know, a really targeted approach. I think, you know... Like a psychodynamic approach. I think definitely if it... um, I think if it was embedded in you as a child, like if it became like a... A coping mechanism. Yeah, these things emotional. can take a while to yeah. come undone. They just don't have to. Yeah. Therapy doesn't have to take a long time, but it can. Sometimes yeah. it can be, can be take a long time and that can be a beautiful thing, but things can happen quickly as well. So do you think that like if you were giving advice now to those two individuals like me, you know, at, at, at 10 years old, mm. like you know, um, guys and girls feeling such like, like, you know, like disassociation from their emotions. Yeah. What kind of advice would that be? Like, I would say could be a good idea to see uh, an ISTDP therapist, which is the modality I'm training in now, intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy. So it's like a psychodynamic therapy. And it's all about, based, I guess, on the premise that we suffer when we deny reality, right? So uh, if you've got pain and you don't want to feel it for some reason, you'll do something to that pain, a defense against the pain, so you don't have to feel it, right? and the reason we start to do those things is because those painful emotions feel like a threat to some kind of safety or relationship. So growing up, maybe you're in a household, right? And it's not allowed for you to feel angry at your mum because she's a tyrant and coming down on you in any anger will be punished tenfold. Or maybe you can't feel emotional around your dad because he'll tell you you're being a little bitch or whatever, right? So somehow feeling angry at your mum feels like a threat to connection. And we are, our deepest instinct is to connect prior to safety. Right? That's why you know kids who get beaten up by their parents will keep going back. They'll run away from an orphanage or a foster home to go back to their parents to get beat up again. Right? Very consistently, very and reliably. People in like relationships, you know, something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's a whole lot of other factors there as well, like economic and things like that, that'll keep people trapped. But yeah. So, you know, someone, some kid, right, in a in a household where they can't feel sad, they can't show any vulnerability or sadness, or their dad says they're a little bitch and withdraws. That rejection is going to hurt like hell you know, to feel rejected by someone hurts. And when you're a little kid to feel rejected by your parents really hurts. And you will learn, your body will learn that that emotion is a threat to that connection, right? So you'll get a feeling of anxiety when that emotion starts to come up, right? You'll get anxious when you get sad. If your dad told you you're a little bitch when you cry, you'll get anxious when you get angry. If your mum, you know, didn't tolerate any uh, you know, rebellion against your authority, right? These are just examples, right? So then uh, you will do something to make the anxiety and the emotion go away. You will clamp down and make yourself numb, right? You'll distract yourself and throw yourself into something else. Some coping strategies are healthier than others. You will turn the anger against yourself and hate yourself for being angry at your parents. You'll feel guilt for feeling angry and because you don't want to feel the guilt, numb yourself. You know, there's a hundred different ways it can happen, right? Or you'll just go into intellectualizing where you'll think but not feel. Or you'll make a joke out of everything. So, you know, you laugh and you laugh and you laugh. But you never feel. Yeah. Totally, right? So what you need to do is find a way to recognize that that's going on. And I recommend doing an ICDP therapist. Um, recognize that that numbness is a defense against feeling something. Try and find the will to feel what's underneath because nothing's going to work if you're not willing to feel the pain underneath, right? Um, and then... Find a way to put aside those defenses and deal with the anxiety that comes up. Regulate it. Notice what you're feeling. Okay, I'm feeling, I'm so anxious. I've got a headache and my, you know, jaw is really tight and my heartbeat's gone up and I feel sick in the stomach because I'm 
letting myself feel sad. And now I'm going to resist the temptation to clamp down and go numb, right? Even though I know that would make this anxiety go away. Instead, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to feel the anxiety and move through it, understand where it comes from, right? And then over time, the anxiety regulates that the body saying, hey man, there's some emotions coming up. This could be a real threat. Be careful. You go, yeah, I got it. It's cool. Let's just sit with it. Sit with it. Sit with it. It starts to dissipate, right? And then maybe you have the opportunity to feel the sadness. So maybe another defense comes up, another defense, another defense. And then eventually you get to the sadness. You're able to feel sad. Or maybe you're able to feel angry at your mom that you never felt angry. You're able to feel sad and acknowledge that you, that, that part of you was rejected by your dad, right? Absolutely, yeah. And then there'll be a relief from anxiety and probably a relief from numbness. If you can train that habit of feeling rather than numbing as a habit, then depression and anxiety should dissipate. Yeah. If, if that's what's yeah. causing it, there's, you know, plenty of ways to skin a cap. Um, that'd be what I'd recommend. Yeah. I mean, look, different dudes grow up in different households and I think the household is going to play a big part in it, you know? Um, if, and here's the thing, like sometimes I feel like psychology has been set up more. It's, it's not especially set up for uh, men, you know, some men it is absolutely a lot of men it is, but for the kind of guy who grows up, uh, getting told you're a little bitch if you cry, you're a pussy if you cry, that kind of thing by their dad, which, you know, I've got clients who have that, um, multiple clients like that, where they they go home from therapy with me, they're forced to come see me, and then they come, they go home where they're told they're a little bitch if they cry. Right? I mean, how hard is that for some young dude to navigate, right? He's yeah. got a therapist telling him to feel, not that I just tell him to feel, but, you know, he's being forced by one parent to come therapy and the other parent's calling him a little bitch. Multiple, multiple young guys who live in live with that pressure. That's tough, right? Ideally, uh, you want to find some kind of an outlet, you know, um, for how you're feeling, you know, and try and make it a healthy one. Get a boxing bag, do a sport class, be active, speak to your friends about it. I mean, usually I think people will be surprised how well received it'll be. You know, I you think just, that's something I've noticed over time. Like, yeah. I, people would like, you know, my mates, if I went up to them and just said like, man, I'm actually struggling with some serious shit. Like I feel... I feel kind of like, I feel, I don't really feel a desire to like get out of bed these days. Yeah. And even when you go into like a week, a week like that, because you know, you're so overwhelmed with union, your expectations in every aspect of life, just going to your mates and I'm like, and they're not going to be like, they're not going to pity you. They're not going to, mm. they're not even going to, it's not going to, the conversation is going to go the way you expect it to go. It's more I think so for a lot like, of people. Yeah. 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 I, I've, hopefully you're lucky enough to have that. Yeah. Um, hopefully, hopefully. Not everyone does, yeah. but. If you've got it, you might have it and not realize. And if you don't, there might be support surrounding you don't realize it's there. So I'd say just try and find out. The other thing is, you know, like try and maybe find a psychologist who fits for you. Sometimes it's like a hairdresser. You might get butchered one day and then you go back to someone else and it's a lot better. You know, it's a bit of a luck of the draw, but, uh, you know, you can ask around, read their reviews if they've got them. But you can find psychologists um, who, you know, know how to talk to people who grew up in the country and fit. The, stereo, the stereotypes that come with that of being a little more closed off and less emotional and more practical and but really straight up, you know. Um, my dad's, he did his PhD on, on type of family therapy and on a no bullshit approach to family therapy. He teaches people how to counsel drought-affected farmers who are really straight up and often hate therapy. So you've got to address the fact that they hate therapy. And, you know, if there's dudes out there who are kind of on the, you know, they're kind of balancing on the edge of seeking help or not seeking help. I'd say, well, what have you got to lose besides pride, you know, some cash, an hour of your life, 
Um, you know, I mean, I can't see it's going to go much worse than that. Like I said, the psychologist isn't going to care about what you're doing in your relationship or not doing. They're not going to care if you take drugs. They're not going to care if you're, you know, how you're living your life really, as long as you're not causing grievous bodily harm to someone or abusing a kid somewhere or something like that. Um, most psychologists have heard it all. Like most of them have worked in mental health units where people have schizophrenia and are feeling disconnected from reality uh, or have volunteered somewhere like Lifeline. They're not going to be rattled by anything you say. Um, but yeah, not, not everyone's going to want to, not everyone's going to be a good fit because the relationship between the client and therapist is so important. People may have to shop around. Um, and it's okay to do that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I do feel sorry for these dudes who, you know, are, have received that message that it's not okay for them to feel anything other than numbness or bravado or whatever. Um, because no one only feels numb or bravado. Everyone has some kind of insecurity, maybe not Jocko Willink or whatever, but you know, I feel bad for those guys cause they've got that pressure, but they're also in the modern day. There's a lot of pressure on men and those guys to soften up and be more open emotionally. And it's like, well, we as a society need to teach them and provide opportunities for them to do it in a way that feels safe for them. Because if they've been told, you know, to never be weak and then they sit across from me as a psychologist and I'm like, you tell me a little more about that. And they're going to feel like what their dad said. They'd always be a little bitch if they get emotional, you know, uh, they want someone who, and you can find it, they can find it. They can find a psychologist or a counselor who's straight up, who's going to be just treat them like an equal, you know, like treat them like a dude um, who doesn't want to talk about this stuff and acknowledge that and have that be okay and not try and push them before they're ready to get emotional and might never get there. I think that ties into what we're doing here at Ungroomed. So, like, I think that's exactly the message I want to push forward. I think for every individual that's going through something, uh, for every guy that's going through mental health issues, like, you know, however minute or however um, significant, I think it's important for you to understand that it doesn't detract from masculinity to talk about. Um, Not at all, man. It's, issues. it's brave. It's just, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think the bravery is a huge aspect of that. I think, you know, we want to pave the way to a world where people can kick the footy and talk about their mental health. And I think yeah. that, you know, even if you want to start off by doing that with a mate, by kicking the footy, and you're talking about, you know, just chicks or sport, I think you want to just drop in that, like, fuck, you know, I'm struggling with something serious. Yeah, you can test the waters. Hey, you can just kind of be, you can just say something like, dude, I was so bummed I didn't get that job and see how the guy responds, whatever. He might not be your guy for this stuff. He might be someone you relax with but not talk about this stuff, or maybe he'll respond really well and you can give a little more. Absolutely, and that could pave the way for you as an individual to get the help you need. So yeah. I think that it's really important to, yeah, really important to understand that the stigma is only there if you let it exist. Um, and well, some people do live in a world of stigma. Like some people are receiving that message from the core, the core people in their life daily, not to feel and get emotional. I think it's less and less, but you know, they actually have to navigate a world where it is stigmatized and they're getting told not to talk about this stuff. So that, that, that is rough, but why let that define you? Why not be in touch with, what's going on inside you know like if therapy is about living in reality and being aligned with reality not denying reality you know surely that fits within masculinity right live in reality because then you can respond adaptively to reality if the blinders are on in some way or there's some distortion in your lens when you're driving you're not going to drive so well right i mean therapy ideally 
all healing should be about cleansing the lenses of perception, right? How is that not a manly thing or not a, why, why, I don't know why a man would not feel, I mean, I know why, but like ideologically, I don't understand why someone wouldn't want to live in reality 